As we get to the, the topic of envy as a part of these seven deadly sins, we see it show up very quickly in Scripture. Uh, we, we have Adam and Eve and their, their children, Cain and Abel. And, and, and it becomes very deadly because Cain and Abel offer sacrifices to God and Abel's is accepted by God and Cain's is rejected. And, and the Bible says that, that Cain became very envious and he became very angry. And so God warns him, he says, sin is couching at your door. You must rule over it. And he doesn't. And we have the first murder in history as he kills his brother because he was envious. And then we see that envy also is not just early in Scripture. It happens early in life. I mean, if you've got two two-year-old kids playing, and when one's over on the side with their toy, perfectly happy, and then they catch a glimpse of another two-year-old with another toy, what do they want? They immediately want that toy. And they immediately say, it's mine. And so it, it happens really early. I love the story of the, the first great girl who comes home, and she announces to her family, I am officially a brownie. Her, her four-year-old brother quickly says, trying to outdo her, I'm officially a cupcake. Well, it, it, it's sort of sad that way, in that we begin to have envy. Now, let's, let's just start off by trying to understand envy before we talk about how to overcome it. Uh, write down these five points. I think they'll be helpful. First of all, envy is highly comparative. You got the right word there. It's comparative. You know, last week we talked about greed, and greed is me wanting more and more and never being satisfied. Envy takes it another step. Not only do I want more and more, I want what you have. And I'm not satisfied without it. Greed is always, and envy is always comparing. How does what I have stack up to what you have? And we learn just to do that forever, don't we? You know, um, I can remember when my daughter Laura was six months old. She was, she was really well advanced her age. I mean, she, was, she walked by eight months. She could stand up and walk around the table at six months. And, and I was so proud of her, you know, and her verbal skills were really good. Her athletic skills did not last. But her verbal skills were really good. And I can remember Stephanie getting on to me because I would, when I had to take her to the doctor, man, I would show her off in front of the other six months old. Like, isn't my kid better than your kid? We always like that kind of comparing, don't we? I grew up in a family of five boys. We competed in everything. I still am mad at my oldest brother, Dane. He played me in one-on-one basketball when we were 15 years old. I almost beat him. First time I'd ever come close. He has never played me another day in my life, all right? Why? Because you always want to stack up. And we still don't want to come home and start playing basketball. Because it gets ugly. Because we're always comparing and maybe in your life, there's so many things you can compare. You can compare your talents to someone else. You know, why has God given this person this gift, you know? I'm, I wish I could sing like a Jeremy Swindle. And you can sit there and you say, man, wouldn't, wouldn't that feel good? Or maybe it's, it's recognition. You know, you work at the same place, you think you've done just as good work as they did, and they get recognized and you don't. Or maybe it's your possessions. You're perfectly okay with your 2001 Camry until your neighbor drives up with their new BMW, and then you're dissatisfied. It just works that way. We're always comparing. And guys, preachers are not shielded from this. I'm really excited this week. Many of you are going to summer celebration at Lipscomb University. I was really honored when they called me and asked me if I'd give one of the keynote speeches. 
And I was pretty excited when they said, and the theme is the book of Romans. I was like, man, you can't get better than Romans. And then they said, we want you to preach on Romans 2, 1 through 11. Don't turn there. It will scare you. It's the most judgmental, condemning passage in the whole book. And I've got it. And then they say on top of that, we do two keynote speakers every night. You are preaching after Randy Harris. <laughs> this is a no-win situation. You know what I'm saying? And I know what they'll do. I know what I'm doing. It's a, it's a comparing game. And we struggle with that, don't we? So it's all about comparing. Number two, envy works best at a close range. Someone said that envy is a small town sin. That's why you see so much envy in small towns. Because we're normally not envious of someone a ways away from us. I, you, know, I don't, um, you know, I don't envy Warren Buffett, even though I know he makes a ton of money. But I might envy the person in the next, next office who gets to raise if I don't. You don't probably, you know, envy LeBron James. You might admire him, but you might envy the guy that makes the basketball team and, and you're on the bench. You see, it's normally close range. And that's why if you look through the Bible, the most common place for envy to happen, maybe the most common even today, is sibling rivalry. That, that's the person you're most prone to be jealous of. And that's why we see that story of Cain and Abel and Jacob and Esau, and Joseph and his brothers, and the prodigal son and the older brother. It's that sibling rivalry. Many of you in here have experienced that. It's pretty commonplace. And so the closer you are, the more prone you are, the closer in proximity, the more prone you are for envy. In fact, there's a a book out now trying to help parents raise children that don't struggle through envy. It's called siblings without rivalry. And and listen to the subtitle. I love this. How to help your children live together so you can live too. That's pretty nice, isn't it? It's a problem. And so it's the people that, that you work with. It's the people you go to school with. It's the people around your age. It's the people in your office. It's the people you're most prone to have this rivalry with, this envy with. Now, here's, here's the bad thing about envy. It's what it leads to, okay? You know, all the, the seven deadly sins have been assigned a color through the years. Anybody know the color envy? You are what with envy? Green. Now, why was green assigned to envy? Because envy will make you sick. It'll make you do things you would never dream that you could do in your mind and even toward somebody. So, so what does envy lead to? First of all, envy leads to a hypercritical spirit. It leads to criticism. In fact, one study says this. 80% of our criticism of others is born in envy. And so, you know, if I don't like how you've gone or what you've achieved, I just become hypercritical of that person. Uh, another thing it leads to is gossip. So, you know, somebody around work you don't like, got on your nerves, maybe got something you wanted, and someone's just sort of sharing a little morsel of negativity about them, you just sort of jump in and you participate because you're not too crazy about them. You even get to the point where you have joy at their failure. Well, this is where it really gets ugly. I mean, and yet, if we'll be really honest here, most of us experience these things. You know, somebody we're envious of, you know, you know, Somebody on the football team, then they get in, injured. Somebody who's achieved, you know, they get caught doing something bad. 
Someone falls on their face and there's this terrible sense of joy in my heart. In fact, it can even lead to sabotage. Where I'm envious of someone and they have a chance for that promotion. Or they have a chance for that award. And behind the scenes, I just sort of share a little bit negative so they don't get it. They never know it, but they don't get it. So it's a very ugly thing. There was a, a Jewish proverb about this, uh, showing how ugly it was. There were these two merchants whose uh, places of business were right across the street from each other, and they were rivals. And they always tried to beat the other. And they really came to just hate the other and compare sales. And, and so finally one day, a genie appears to one of the merchants and says, you can have anything you want. You dream about it. You want a million dollars, you got. In fact, here's what we're going to do. Not only will you get a million dollars, we'll double whatever you want. You'll get $2 million. If you tell the genie, I want my business, you know, to grow this big, it will double grow that. He said, here's the only problem, though, is whatever you get, your rival will get double. So if you get a million dollars, he gets $2 million. Your business grows, it'll double. And so the man who's so envious couldn't quite handle the question. And so finally he answered the genie this way. Here's what I want. I want you to blind me in one eye. You can laugh about that. It's all right. That's pretty nasty, isn't it? And yet envy can lead us to that kind of place. It's ugly. And and next, and this is the bad thing about it, is envy is not fun. Of all the deadly sins, only envy is not fun at all. We talked about greed last week. There is a momentary joy in purchasing something even if you can't afford it. And we'll talk about lust next week. And my friends, who of us can deny that there's not a pleasure in lust? It's temporary, but it's there. Even anger, that moment you... You let loose and you blast somebody you're mad at. At least in that moment, there is sort of a sense of release. It'll come back to bite you. But envy is the only one of the deadly sins that is just no fun at all. In fact, I was listening one time to a very wise young lady. She was in a classroom, and she was asked, she said that she was asked by the teacher, if you were to go back and give advice to your 20-year-old self. What have you learned since that point? What advice would you give your 20-year-old self to change your life and make it better? And here was her wise answer. Comparison is the robber of all joy. You see, normally, guys, we're okay with what we've got and what gifts we have and what talents we have until we run into somebody with more, and it steals our joy. And then number five, this is what makes envy most dangerous. Envy isolates you from other people and from God. How many relationships between siblings, between spouses who are competitive, between friends who lose it in competitiveness and comparison are destroyed? Because in the long run, if you begin to grow an envious heart and you're jealous of anybody who gets more, has more than you, man, it, it, it breeds a sense of, I've got to protect myself, and so I, I just don't really want to be around people mu- much because it, it brings out the worst in me. I want to protect myself. You ever, you ever run to that person that everywhere they go, every school they've been to, every business they've been a part of, every team they've been a part of, they've been done wrong? 
I mean, you, you just listen to them long enough, man, and they will tell you one story after another of who did them wrong. Now, you want to stop in that? I want to. I'm not normally mean enough to do this and say, do you catch a common denominator in all these stories? Okay, you're there, all right? I, I said to a young man the other day, he was just like, every, I said, man, and, and we were close enough I could laugh about it, I said, do you think there's a worldwide conspiracy against you? Because everywhere you go, you're done wrong. And before long, that breeds a spirit that says, I'm not letting anybody get close because I don't want to get hurt. And then in the long run, it gets even worse than that. It also makes you isolate yourself from God. Because if all of life is unfair, and God has blessed all these other people like he hadn't blessed you, who do you blame in the long run? It's God. In fact, Jesus tells a parable about this that made people in his day extremely uncomfortable. And frankly, it still makes me uncomfortable. It's one of my least favorite parables. Because Jesus tells this story of the man who's hiring workers. The parable of the workers in the vineyard. And he goes out and he hires somebody at sunrise. He hires somebody at 9 o'clock. He hires some other group at 12 o'clock. 3 o'clock, and then one group that may work an hour at sunset. Now, so far, it's okay. But what was the problem in the parable? He promised to pay them all the same thing, one denarius. That makes me uncomfortable. In America, we'd say, that's not fair. He pays the guy who got there at sunrise, one denarius, and the guy that squeaks in at the very end at sunset, one denarius. We'd say, man, that is cause for a lawsuit. But listen to what Jesus said. He says, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I will give the one who is hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? Wow. How often do I become envious simply because in some way God has been more generous to somebody else? And see, that begins to isolate me from God. So how do you overcome this dark sin? Interested talking to people after first service because I think most of us think, you know, when I looked over the seven sins, I thought, uh envy is not one of my deals. But you know what? The more I dive deeper into it, the more I know some of these things have been in my heart. A lot of people after first service said, you know what, when you started, I didn't think this was me, but then when you started going down that list of what it leads to, criticism and gossip and all the, uh, that was me. How do we overcome this? And, and this is just going to be the most simple application of any message you've heard in a long time. It goes back to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love does not envy. If you want to overcome envy, you don't overcome envy by going, stop envying. You overcome envying by becoming more loving. Now, let's look at this. What is love biblically? Because we have terrible definitions in our culture today. Here's the the biblical definition of the highest form of love, agape love. Love is seeking the best for others. Say that with me. Seeking the best. Say it like you mean it. Seeking the best for others. You notice that biblically this love is not, it's not based on a feeling. It's not based on emotion. 
You, you see, our problem with love in so many areas of life is we think it's simply emotional. That leads to emotion, but that's not the foundation. You know, I can, I can fall in love and I can fall out of love. That's, who knows when it's going to happen. But the the truth about biblically is is that love is a decision that I want the best for the people around me. I want them to achieve. I learn to applaud what they do. I can, as one brother told me after first service, I can learn to admire something good in your life without desiring that it happen in my life. So how do we get there? Okay, how, how, how do we get that kind of love that everywhere I go, it's like, what's best for this person? How do I seek that for them? Let's write down some things here. How can I get there? First of all, allow God to love you. The problem with envy is insecurity. You know, I'm so insecure to who I am and what I got that someone flashes in front of me that has more or does better, my insecurity kicks in. How do, you, how do you work on your insecurity? Here, here's my favorite definition of, of, of self-worth. How, how do you determine self-worth? Self-worth is based on my perception of what I believe your perception of the, is of me. Now, let me, let me define that a little bit better. It's my perception of the most significant people in my life and how they perceive me. Okay? In other words, you know, if it's somebody I don't know or I don't like out there... They can't, they can't affect my self-worth because I don't care what they think, all right? But if someone I'm close to, I mean, as you're growing up, obviously your self-worth is more than likely determined at young age by your parents because they're the significant other in your life. As you become a teenager, often it swaps to your peers because they're the significant others. By end up as an adult with your bosses, how do they look at me? How do they perceive me? But even more than that, how do I perceive they perceive me? And so, guys, here, here's the key to overcome this and become insecure is to make God the most significant other in your life. Now, I know what I'm saying tonight, this morning, may sound trite, all right? But please don't pass this by. This is really, really big. You've got to allow God to be the most significant other because here is the truth. He will always love you. Jeremiah 31 verse 3 says, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Jesus comes to this earth and people are shocked at the kind of people that God would love. Jesus died on the cross to once and for all say, I love you and there's nothing you can do about it. So let God, uh, allow God to love you. I don't know about you, but I can share the love of God with somebody else easier than I can myself. How about you? You know what I mean? If I see you really screw up, it's very easy for me to go, hey, man, just turn your back on that. Repent. God loves you. Nothing's changed. But when I royally screw up, it's like I can't, I can't let go of it. So you've got to let God love you. And, and, guys, here's the truth about love. In any relationship, mark this down, love does not happen in a hurry. You, you, you can't, that, that's where you get in trouble with your family, your spouse, your children, is when you're in a big hurry and you're rushing around and you're not very loving. And with God, it's not going to happen in a hurry. That's the problem with our culture. You've got to step back at some point and j- just let God love you. You ever been in a friendship or relationship where you, where you just finally had to say to somebody, would you just let me love you? 
I mean, stop putting these defenses up, man. I, I love you. Just, just let me love you. Because I think God looks down at many of us this morning. They're living in insecurity and envy. And he's not mad at you. But what he would like to say to you and to me is, would you just let me love you? And let me tell you that, guys. When that love comes into your heart, it's life-changing. That brings us to the next point. After you've allowed God to love you, allow his love to flow through you. You're not a dead end for his love. You're a conduit for his love. You see, once you've received your security and your significance in him, and you're secure in who you are, I can love the person who gets the promotion over me. I can love the person who's better than I am at something because I'm securing God. He's all I need. Now look at some specific instructions here in Scripture when you're having a problem with somebody, even someone you might call an enemy. Here's what Jesus said. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So when you've got a problem with somebody, there's some proactive steps that you need to take. First of all is to love that person. Love here is to take an action, to be kind, to be considerate. Maybe the person you're having problems with right now, maybe at work, you need to go in Monday and do something really nice for them. You see, the cool thing is not only might it change their heart, but what's guaranteed is it will change your heart. And then this is a, this is a game changer. Start praying for them. You know, uh, th- this week, all this week, I'm going to pray for my enemy at summer celebration, Randy Harris. <laughs> I'm just going to pray for him. In fact, I found growing up, that was a, I was pretty young when I started speaking. All, I was actually 19 years old, and I started speaking at these youth rallies. And I used to go to these youth rallies, and, and it'd be all these guys speaking that I'd grown up revering. And so I would walk in so insecure, and all I could think about is how good am I going to do, and what are people going to say? And God finally revealed to me what I needed to pray was, Lord, would you bless me and help me do a really good job? But Lord, would you help Joe Beam do a better job? And there was a relief to that. And I'm telling you about this person that that you're thinking about right now. Would you just go pray about them? It's hard to remain envious and hateful towards somebody that you're asking God to bless. In fact, right now, would you just bow for a moment? I'll bow. If there's somebody that's been coming to your mind through this message, would you just pray for that person? Let's just do that right now. Amen. Keep doing that. Now, one more point, and this is going to sound really weird, what I'm about to say to you, but I think if you get it, it'll help you. If you really want to overcome this issue and you want your security to be in God, here is what I believe is the pivotal moment, and you can see it on the screen. It's when you move from dating God to marrying God. You say, buddy, what are you talking about? That is really, really weird. Guys, some of us are in a dating relationship with God, and that's not going to work. Others of us, hopefully, are in a married relationship. What's the difference? When you're in a dating relationship... You are in competition. You're in competition with all the other suitors. You, you are competing to win their love. You're trying to 
You're trying to prove yourself to them and win them over. And so here you are, you're insecure, you're, you're trying to, to win their love, and so you're competing to win their love. Here's the great thing about marriage, about Christian covenant marriage, is that your love is a given. You have made a vow before God that you are going to love each other for better or for worse. You come into a married relationship with the security of that love that allows your love to grow greater and greater. Over here in dating, it's very insecure because they could walk out any moment and not think twice about it. In marriage, if you understand what God has said to you, unless something really crazy happens, you are committed to one another for life. You don't have to worry the next day they're going to be gone. That is a given. And off that security, your love can grow. Because some of the problem with us is many of us are living in a dating relationship with God. We're still trying to win God's love. We're trying to allow God to look down on us and, and approve of us in everything we do. And the question, the truth is you never can do that. And so you always stay in insecurity because God might change his mind about you. But the truth is, God loves you with an everlasting love. It's not an insecure thing. God says the foundation of your relationship is I will never leave you or forsake you. The foundation of your relationship is I've loved you with this everlasting love. So you stand in that, and out of that security, you grow stronger and stronger and stronger. So can I ask you this morning, is your love with God more like trying to prove yourself and earn his love or is it an accepted part of your life where you're secure enough in him to just keep growing in your love of him blown away that he can even love you as bad as you are and now secure enough that you can even love the people around you that you might have been jealous of you may not always feel it it, it may start with an action it may start with a prayer it, and that may lead to some great feelings but um you start in that security. Can I, can I ask you this morning, directly as I know how, because this is such a simple point. You might walk out of here and blow it off. But, but listen to me, guys. Are you secure in God's love for you? That is a game changer about all of these deadly sins. Because in every one of them, we've talked about you're trying to fill a void that only God can fill. So I want you to do that with me for a moment. I want us to, to, I want us to slow down just for a couple minutes. And I want you to allow God, even in this assembly, to love on you. Would you stand up? Just stand up. I want you to close your eyes when you stand up. Just go ahead and close your eyes. And let me lead you through a little exercise here. First of all, as your eyes are closed, I want you to remember a point in your life where someone unconditionally loved you where you know you didn't deserve it, you told them maybe the worst thing about you, and yet you couldn't shake their love. They might have even said to you, would you just let me love you? Think of a moment in your life, it might be with your spouse or a friend or your parents or just somebody who loved you when, when you were unlovable. Remember what that was like. And now here's what I want you to recognize. Here's what I need to recognize today. God loves you a hundred times more. I don't care how much that person loved you, 
how much they blessed you. God loves you more. Would you allow yourself to believe that? While your eyes are closed, I want you to listen to this passage from Romans chapter 8. Let it just wash over you. Don't think about somebody else. Think about yourself. With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And and who would dare tangle with God by messing with the one of his choosing? Who would dare even to point a finger? The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is the presence of God at this very moment sticking up for us. Right now, sticking up for you. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There is no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sin listed in Scripture. None of these phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or even unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our Master, has embraced us. Open your eyes, my friends. Open your eyes to the truth that God has embraced you. If you understand this love and you've never, uh, never decided to follow him, I'm telling you what you'd do this morning. You'd run to him. If you've understood this love today and you're seeing that you've not been living in that, you've been living in that dating relationship and it's caused all kinds of ugly things to happen in your heart, you would run to him today and maybe you'd just slow down enough, even this assembly, to let us love you in the name of Jesus. If you need to come, come right now while we sing.